So, uh, in our previous lesson, for those who are here, we looked at the distinction between natural and positive law and how God has revealed to us his moral law by natural means, particularly by way of the human conscience. Uh, today, what we're going to do is look at some passages of Scripture, as well as some just general uh, evidence, extra biblical evidence, which demonstrate that the precepts of this naturally revealed moral law are the same as those found in the Ten Commandments. And then we'll look at some additional passages which uh, demonstrate that the moral teachings presented in the New Testament are likewise grounded in those same precepts. So I'll go through a couple of examples. You don't need to turn to these, but in Genesis 4-7, God warns Cain, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And this is the first mention of sin uh, by name in the Bible. But we see that God does not have to explain to Cain what it means. Cain understands. And in verse 9, after Cain has killed Abel, God asks him, where is Abel? And Cain responds by lying. The only reason that Cain would see fit to lie about this, about what he's done to Abel here, is because he knew that what he had done was wrong. Now, we're not given any indication that God had ever spelled out his moral law in a word to anybody before, uh, although I can't prove that he hadn't. Um, but we see that Cain knew it. Uh, so let's look at another example where it's more clear that the person that we're looking at uh, definitely would not have had any prior communication with God regarding the law of God. So in Genesis 12, 10 to 20, Abraham and Sarah go to Egypt and they pretend to be siblings rather than husband and wife. And so Pharaoh takes Sarah to be his wife. And as a result, God begins to afflict Pharaoh and his household with plagues as punishment. So it's clear that God holds Pharaoh accountable to the seventh commandment. And it's also clear from Pharaoh's response that he knew that having another man's wife was wrong. And he's a pagan king, and yet he demonstrates a knowledge of God's law here. And we see the same thing in Genesis 20 with another pagan king named Abimelech, and then later with Isaac and Rebekah, and another pagan king also named Abimelech, although it's probably a different guy with the same name since this would have been about 100 years later. Uh, next, uh, another example, in Genesis 44, Joseph tricks his brothers into thinking that Benjamin had stolen his silver cup. Now, these are the patriarchs, God's covenant people, but this is still hundreds of years before the giving of the law through Moses. And yet it appears that not only the patriarchs, but also the Egyptians involved in the story understood that stealing was wrong. Um, now let's look, and I do actually want y'all to turn to this, at uh, Leviticus 18. So would someone go there? Um, this chapter deals with sexual sin, so the seventh commandment, and it's found within the Mosaic law. But there's something interesting toward the end of the chapter. So could someone please read verses 24 to 28 of Leviticus 18? Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, but by all these nations I am very 
rushing out before you become a contract. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity on the land long that I was inhabited. You shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of them to be abominations. Hebrew, the native or the stranger who sojourns among them, for the people of the land who were before you and did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Bless the land long that you out when you make it unclean and abomination that was before all right, so we're told here that the nations that were in the land before Israel were judged because they did these things that the chapter is, uh, is saying are forbidden. So if that's the case, then these laws must have been binding universally without a written law. And in verse 26, it says, neither the native nor the sojourner is to do these things. Now, you can contrast this with a place like Deuteronomy 14.21, in which unclean meat is forbidden to the Israelites, but is permitted to sojourners. And so that tells us that the former passage, Leviticus 18, is dealing with universal moral law or natural law, while a place like Deuteronomy 14.21 is dealing with positive law, which is binding only to those who are under that covenant. So these are a couple of examples of the, uh, what we call the second table of the law. So how about the first table? Um, you don't need to turn here, but in Isaiah 44, 13 to 20, God mocks the foolishness of the pagan who cuts down a tree and uses part of it to cook his food and warm himself and then uses another part to carve an idol. Now, God has made us logical beings so that we could use logic to discern the truths that he's revealed to us. And so here and in other places, he demonstrates the illogical nature of idolatry. Even unbelievers can tell you if they're honest that the things that they look to for happiness never give them lasting joy. Um, I've been reading John Owen's biblical theology and in that book, Owen demonstrates and documents how a lot of the more lucid of the pagan philosophers even recognize the silliness of idolatrous worship. Um, looking further at pagan idolatry also, we see that there is some measure of understanding of the first table of God's law, even among those who worship false gods. They realize that if there is a God, then it would be important to worship that God and that there must be some proper way of doing so. And so we do see some similarities between pagan worship of false gods and the biblically prescribed true worship of the true God, as well as laws in pagan societies against uh, the blaspheming of whichever gods they recognized. And even the detestable practice of human sacrifice was based on some understanding, albeit a very corrupt understanding, of the need for an atoning substitute. And that's why uh, the ones that were sacrificed often were children or virgins. It's because the pagans understood at some level that the sacrifice needed to be pure. And so even with such a wicked practice as human sacrifice, we see that the people doing it were not entirely clueless about God's law and his justice. So then what about the uh, fourth commandment? Now, I read before uh, last week, chapter 22 of our confession, paragraph seven regarding the Sabbath. 
It says, as it is the law of nature that in a general proportion of time by God's appointment uh, be set apart for the worship of God. So by his word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day and seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. And from the resurrection of Christ was changed to the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. And it is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. So if you notice at the start of that paragraph, the confession asserts that having a general proportion of time set apart for worship is a precept of the law of nature. Uh, So where might the authors of the confession have gotten this idea? Well, first of all, God's own act of completing the work of creation in six days and resting on the seventh would have been revealed by God to Adam as a pattern to be followed and should have been passed down by him to his descendants. Second, we think about our division of time into days, weeks, months, and years. Of those four, three of the divisions are based on cosmological cycles. The day is one rotation of the earth, The month is roughly one revolution of the moon around the earth, and the year is one revolution of the earth around the sun. And yet, many cultures throughout human history, even those that had no Judeo-Christian influence, have seen fit to have a cycle of some number of days, usually ten or fewer, and seven was fairly common, with one of those days set apart as day of rest, uh, religious worship, or both, Um, even though these periods are not based on any cosmological cycles. And now we'll come back to the topic of the Lord's Day as a weekly Sabbath for Christians in a future lesson, but it kind of demonstrates people understood a need for some cycle that was, you know, multiple days but less than a month. Um, So now let's move on to the New Testament, and we'll see some examples of some of these same moral precepts found in the law of nature and the Ten Commandments being held up as a continuing moral standard even after the Mosaic Covenant has passed away. So I'll start with the ones that I mentioned back, back in the introductory lesson. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-four to 40 and Mark 12, 28 to 33, we have the accounts of Jesus being asked by a lawyer of the Pharisaical party, which of the uh, of the commandments is the greatest in the law. So could someone please turn to Mark uh, 12, 28 to 33 and read that? And one of the scribes came Said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And so, with all your heart, 
itself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Thank you. So here, when Jesus is asked which is the greatest commandment, he gives these two. Uh, love God first and foremost and love your neighbor. He's not giving new commandments, as I mentioned before. The first one is a quote from Deuteronomy 6.5, and the second is from Leviticus 19.18. Nor is he simply saying that these two are the most important out of many various commandments of the law. What he is saying is that they sum up all the others. So to see this more clearly, would someone please read Romans 13.8-10? through 10? Thank you. So here Paul is saying that the only thing we are to owe one another is love. And he lists four out of the last six commandments, uh, or five if you're reading the King James or New King James Version. And he says that they are summed up in that which uh, Jesus called the second great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he follows that up with love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, we shouldn't make too much here of the fact that he doesn't list the fifth and ninth commandments. Um, he didn't need to be exhaustive in order to make his point. And at this place in the epistle, he's just finished his exhortation about respecting those in authority over us. And so the fifth commandment obviously is there. And I don't think any reasonable person would conclude that it's possible to love one's neighbor while bearing false witness against them. Uh, just on the basis of the fact that it's not listed here in this passage. So what was being communicated by Jesus to the Pharisees and Paul to the Roman Christians is that the moral law is our instruction in what love looks like. And we can say, therefore, that to accuse the law of God of being unloving is foolishness. Now, Paul here is talking about love to neighbor, which is the second table of the law. But as I said before, it's perfectly reasonable to extrapolate that uh, interpretation and say that uh, if the last six commandments expand upon the commandment to love our neighbor, then the first four must expand upon the overarching commandment to love our God. So let's look at another passage. If you all would turn to 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 9 and 10. Could someone read those two verses, please? And while it's being read, pay attention to this list that Paul gives of uh, types of or, or list of sins that he gives and see if you can tell which of the Ten Commandments each one relates to. So if someone would please read that. First Corinthians 6, 9, 10. Yeah. So, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. All right, thank you. So here, 
Uh, Paul lists multiple kinds of sinners who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if we look at each one, we can see how they correspond to some of the Ten Commandments. Again, it's not an exhaustive list, but we have idolaters. So that's the second commandment. Um, Well, first and second, really. Uh, What about drunkards and revilers? Uh, Can anyone tell me what commandment those violate? Anyone want to take a stab at that? All right. Um, So reviler is, is not a word that we use that commonly anymore, but it means to berate or verbally abuse someone. And Jesus in Matthew 5, 21 to 26 in the Sermon on the Mount equates that with murder. So that would be the sixth commandment. Uh, what about drunkards? Does anyone know what, which of the Ten Commandments uh, drunkenness violates? Or does anyone want to take a stab at that? Tenth. Tenth? Why would it be the tenth? Um, not being satisfied with having enough. Could be. Yeah. I, I think um, most clearly it would also be the sixth, though. Um, and I think there are two ways, there are two reasons for that. One is that it can lead to reckless behavior, which imperils yourself and others. Uh, and the other is that it's just generally harmful to your health. Um, and in the Westminster Larger Catechism, when it talks about the sixth commandment and what sins are prohibited in the sixth commandment, Included in the list are the immoderate use of food and drink. And so this is important for us to pick up on. We not have, that we not have too narrow a view of the Ten Commandments as if they're just ten short rules among many. We need to see how they comprehend all the righteous requirements of God. And so when you're reading the Bible and you see moral judgments regarding various matters like the condemnation of gluttony and drunkenness, which are not specifically mentioned in the Ten Commandments, try to see if you can figure out which of the commandments they do correspond with. So, continuing in this passage, we have uh, three which correspond with the Seventh Commandment, the sexually immoral, or uh, literally fornicators, or if we want to use our modern sanitized language, that would be people who engage in premarital sex, and then adulterers and homosexuals. For the Eighth Commandment, you have thieves and swindlers. And for the Tenth, you have the greedy. And he ends this section in verse 11 saying, And such were, note the past tense, some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now when we look at the third use of the law that I mentioned before, the didactic use, we'll come back to this passage because it's uh, very relevant to that topic. So another place like this is uh, 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10. Could someone please read that? And again, while it's being read, see if you can uh, take note of which of the Ten Commandments each of the things listed corresponds with. Homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, 
and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted with. Thank you. So he starts in verse 8 by saying, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now we know that Paul, in all of his uh, battles with the circumcision party, was used to being accused of relaxing or even rejecting the law. And so he affirms here that there is a proper use of it uh, for those who would break it. And here we get a list of the sort of people who need the law. Uh, this one's a bit longer than in 1 Corinthians 6, but let's spend a little time going through it. Um, has anybody, uh, anybody want to tell me which ones they did recognize, uh, which connections with the Ten Commandments they did recognize? Some of them should be pretty easy. Yeah. Um, which one? So I have um, for those who kill their father and mothers. All right. Murders. All right. So. Any others? So for uh, NASB say kill their fathers and mothers? Yes. Okay. Yeah. ESV says strikes their fathers and mothers. I think the fifth so. commandment probably, because it follows that with murder. I, in this passage... He's much more going in the order of the Ten Commandments. And so, yeah, those who strike their fathers and mothers and then murderers, that's the fifth and sixth. Um, so then after that... The seventh. Hmm? The seventh. Yeah, then the seventh, um, which we got sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. Uh, enslavers, anyone? Eighth. Eighth, yeah. I mean, that's... Uh, the worst possible thing you can steal is another person. Um, and then liars and perjurers, that's the ninth, obviously. Now, covet, uh, coveters aren't listed, but again, it doesn't need to be an exhaustive list. Uh, I mean, coveting is explicitly identified as sin elsewhere in the Bible. So we basically got the, the fifth through ninth, so the majority of the second table. What about the first table, though? Because before we get to those who strike their fathers and mothers, we have the terms lawless and disobedient, and then ungodly, sinners, unholy, and profane. Now, when we see, um, and Hal helped me out with this, with the, one of his commentar exegetical commentaries, but uh, when we see how these words are used in Scripture, that is, the Greek terms here, that Paul uses when we see how they're used elsewhere in the uh, New Testament as well as in the common Greek translation of the Old Testament, we can see how they actually relate to the first four. So ungodly is probably not surprisingly the negated form of a word commonly used to those who worship the true God. And so the ungodly are those who violate the first commandment. Now sinners is a word we normally think of very generically as those who are you know, all sorts of lawbreakers. But in Scripture, it's commonly used to refer to pagan idolaters. And then unholy and profane are similar in meaning, um, as to profane something means to treat it as unholy uh, or common. And we violate the third commandment when we treat God's name in an unholy or common manner. So if you think about the first petition in the Lord's Prayer, it says, Hallowed or holy be your name. 
Uh, and then the word profane is commonly used in Scripture for those who treat the Sabbath as unholy. So with this, we can see that the list that Paul gives here really follows all the, at least the first nine of the Ten Commandments in sequence. Um, and I also want to highlight that at the end of verse 10 through verse 11, he identifies all of these things as contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. So here's a clear affirmation by Paul of the harmony of the law and the gospel when the law is used rightly. The gospel is the good news of our salvation, and what we need to be saved from is our captivity to sin and the judgment of God that is due to sinners. And so to understand the gospel, we really do need to understand what sin is. And as our uh, children's catechism says, sin is any transgression of the law of God. And as a uh, passage in 1 John 3 that I mentioned last week, sin is lawlessness. So to understand what sin is, we need to understand what the law is. Um, and again, we will come back to this passage when we look at the uh, second and third uses of the law. Uh, we can see some of these same commandments expressed in the first part of Ephesians 5. You don't need to turn there. And, but when we get to the latter part of Ephesians 5, and also uh, going to verse 9 of Ephesians 6, Paul gives commands regarding the relationship of wives and husbands, children and parents, and servants and masters. And in chapter 6, verse 2, speaking to children, he actually quotes the fifth commandment. But given that Paul groups these three different kinds of relationships together, um, and that also Peter, in chapters 2 and 3 of his first epistle, uh, also adds submission to elders, or to the elders by the members of the church, uh, as well as to the civil magistrate, I think we should conclude that the fifth commandment is a general commandment to everyone to, obe to be obedient to those who are in authority over them in every sort of relationship. And so the fifth commandment is not limited to the relationship of parents and children. A lot of us are employees of somebody, and so this would apply to us as commandment uh, to obey our bosses. Uh, and it would apply to us as church members with respect to our elders. Um, now, just in case that you think that Paul has a monopoly on this kind of teaching, let's look at John. You can actually find several similar lists of sins which correspond to the Ten Commandments throughout Revelation. We'll just look at the last one, which is Revelation twenty-two fifteen, And would someone please read that one? Thank you. So it starts with dogs, which seems a bit weird, um, especially since a lot of us have dogs as pets and we enjoy their company and everything. Uh, but the metaphor here, <laughs> metaphor here refers to feral dogs, which are filthy. And uh, 
we can see in some places in Scripture, the Jews actually refer to the Gentiles as dogs. Now, John doesn't mean here that Gentiles are outside of, uh, outside of the people of God, but he's using it here sort of metaphorically for those who have not been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And then next we have sorcerers, which is a new one that Paul didn't mention before, but sorcery is a practice rooted in uh, idolatry and false spirituality. And so it amounts to a denial of the true God or of uh, worshiping God in an unauthorized manner. And the Mosaic case laws clearly condemned it. Uh, The remaining things in this list here in in, uh, this verse are things that we've already looked at. So... Uh, one other thing I'll mention, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 15, and you don't need to turn there, but we see Paul rebuking those who are idle and lazy. Uh, anyone want to take a stab at which of the Ten Commandments idleness and laziness might be breaking? Eighth. Eighth, yeah, very much could be. Um, how would that be? Yeah, yeah. so it, it could be the eighth. Like if you're getting paid to do work and you're not doing it, uh, then you are um, stealing from your boss. Uh, also, if you are, by your laziness, forcing other people to have to provide for you when you could be working to provide for yourself. Um, but there's another one. I took a class when I was at MSU on Judeo-Christian ethics with Albert Bisson, who was a, a good, solid preacher up there, but who also teaches at the university. And he made the point that the fourth commandment, you know, we, we always look at it as commanding rest, but it actually commands both work and rest. Exodus 20 verse 9 says, Six days shall you labor and do all your work, and then it also commands rest after that. Now, the commanded rest, it's, it's not only a day off from work, is it? Um, is it not more than that? Um, remember how last week when we were looking at positive laws, I mentioned that for a positive law to be just, it's going to serve the law of nature or the moral law. And earlier in Uh, This lesson, I mentioned that it is the law of nature that in a general proportion of time by God's appointment that there be time set apart for the worship of God. Um, That's from our confession. When we read the Old Testament, we see God establishing many festivals wherein the people were commanded to gather together for worship and celebrate what God has done. So we need to see these as uh, positive laws, which are subservient to the fourth commandment. But we also see in the New Testament Christians gathering and worshiping God on the first day of the week. So gathering together, hearing the word preached, breaking bread together in memory of Christ's work. These are New Testament positive commands which correspond with the fourth commandment. Um, So if we neglect to do these things, it's a sin. And uh, so it seems to me that the New Testament church's observance of the Lord's day is simply the New Testament positive application of the fourth commandment. Um, Now, of course, due to the busyness of our modern life, we're often tempted to view the upholding of the fourth commandment as a burdensome thing. 
but it is supposed to be a restful thing and it's something we should see as a freeing thing and as a gift and we'll talk about that more in a later lesson. Now, just before we close, something I want to briefly touch on is is make sure that when you read the Ten Commandments, you view them both positively and negatively. Now, only one of the Ten Commandments, which is the fourth one, is um, expressed both positively and negatively. Uh, The other, there's one other, which is the fifth commandment, which is positive only. And when I say positive, meaning it's a command, there's no prohibition mentioned. So the fourth commandment contains commands and prohibition. The fifth commandment uh, doesn't actually explicitly give a prohibition, but all the other eight commandments are expressed negatively as prohibitions. But we need to keep in mind that all of them have positive and negative applications. So when you read, you shall have no other God before me, you should also understand that to mean you shall worship the true God. Or when you read, you shall not murder, you should also read, you shall work to promote and preserve life. Or when you read, you shall not steal, you should also read, you shall promote the enrichment of yourself and others by just and honest means. And so, when you see positive commandments in the Bible, try to tie them into the Ten Commandments. For example, when you read passages about giving to the poor, let the Eighth Commandment come to your mind. And... The catechisms are really helpful with this. So hopefully now I've demonstrated from Scripture that God has an eternal moral law that he's revealed it it to us by nature and that its precepts are what's summed up in the Ten Commandments and that it continues to be the standard of right and wrong for mankind. So Lord willing, in the coming few weeks, we will look at the ceremonial and civil laws of the Mosaic Covenant and see how they function under that covenant as positive laws, and also see what we can still learn from them, even though we are not under that covenant. And after that, we'll return to the moral law and look at how it is useful both to unbelievers and to believers, and how it serves the gospel of Christ. And actually, what my plan is for the next one or two weeks is to look at covenant theology more general, more generally in order to kind of lay the groundwork for looking at positive laws. Um, so, does anyone have any questions or comments they want to talk about? Yes, sir. I've got two. All right. First of all, you said, unless I misunderstood you, to neglect to do these things of the sin, you refer to the fourth commandment and So, how does that relate to doctors and nurses and policemen? Yeah, so those are works of necessity and, and mercy, and Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath in the New Testament certainly allows for those things and, and commends them. I mean, people who, uh, you know, if somebody needs medical attention or if their house is on fire on the Lord's Day, then it would be sin to say, no, nah, I can't help you. I've, mm-hmm. I've got to be, you know, worshiping God. What about an employer that requires you to work on Sabbath? It's not a matter of necessity, but restaurants. Yeah, I mean, it would be... Some, and because so many people want to go eat out on Sundays, some people are told that they don't have a choice to do that. I would say it's more on the employer to be willing to accommodate them or employers to say we're not going to open on Sundays really is what they should do. Um, yeah.
Would that be sent? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a tough question because, I mean, sometimes, um, I don't know, that, hmm, I'm inclined to say no, if, if that's well, not, convicted about it, then yeah, yeah if, if, if they are, certainly, um, yeah, 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 I, if it, I, I yeah right. If, if, if you know yeah. that this is you know, a preset that's not passed that, away. In some cases, whenever you've agreed to do a job before you've been convicted of these things, you know, mm-hmm. in a lot of situations, there's employers that will allow you to work on Saturdays instead of Sundays. And if that's yeah. an option, then yeah, yeah. Should do that. and if you but if you've already started the right. job and hadn't already had such an agreement in place, right. then it yeah it might be a lot harder to if you if you come to that conviction later to say you know hey can I can you make this new accommodation to my schedule? Yeah, that that is a tough one. That is something that a lot of us have to deal with. I mean, I've I've been told in my job accounting is not a work of necessity, but there have been times where I've been told because we had deadlines that you have to go in at least for a few hours on Sunday. Because, well, so this wouldn't necessarily apply to, oh, you just, you know, we're at home and you had a little too much and you got a buzz. But somebody that is drinking so much that they are uh, behaving recklessly, they're endangering themselves. Also, um, of course, they're doing damage to their bodies as well if they're, if they're doing that. And so... The again, like I said, all of the commandments have positive and negative aspects. So the positive command of the sixth commandment is to promote health and promote life. And so, if you're doing things that are destructive to your health, then you're violating that. Does does that make sense, or do you want to? Okay. I would say the general purpose, you know, just a blanket statement of the sixth commandment is preservation of life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, a lot of sins, generally, you know, when someone commits a sin, there's a lot of other things that are going along with it. And so it's not usually just one commandment that's being broken. Uh, Also, certainly uh, addiction would be a form of idolatry. I mean, if that thing is consuming your your thoughts and taking your thoughts away from God. Yeah. If not all. Really? Yeah. Um, Anyone uh, have any more questions?
Um, all right. Um, I think we're just about at time. Um, so, uh, Seth, would you close us, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for allowing us to come before you and to worship you as the triune God. We're thankful for the time that John has devoted to studying the um, intricacies of your law and how those are represented in the, the New Testament as well as the Old. We pray that uh, as we leave here, we continue to apply the law to our lives. We praise your name that you have written the law in our hearts and have saved us from our own sins, Lord. We're thankful for the aspects of the law to show us those things in which you have deemed profane and the things that you have deemed holy, Lord. I pray that we go out of here and live holy lives, and we go from here in this moment now to worship you in spirit and in truth, and that you bless our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah.